Spirits of French Lick is proud to introduce the Lee Sinclair Four Grain Bottled and Bond Bourbon. This four-year-age, double-pot distilled, non-chill filtered bourbon has creamy, round, and lifting notes with caramel and vanilla, followed by apple, mint, graham cracker, and ginger, as well as cardamom. The finish is slightly French walnut, resolving the sweet, fruity, almost ground cherry and white pepper. Our spirits are available for tasting and purchase inside the French Lick Winery and Distillery. Spirits of French Lick. Respect the grain. Please enjoy responsibly. What's up, Scotchy Bourbon Boys fans? This is Alan Bishop of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. You may know me better as Indiana's Alchemist of the Black Forest, but if you're at all interested in the Fortean, High Strangeness, the Paranormal, and the Unexplained, then you should tune into my new podcast, If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, available now wherever you get your podcast, including Spotify, Google Podcast and Amazon. Oh, look at that. There you go. There's a technical difficulty. <laughs> Here we go. Let's try it again. to another podcast of the Scotchy Bourbon Boys. That there was Kenny Fuller of the Luca Mariano Old Amar- Americana Band, and we are back for another exciting podcast. Tonight, we have a very special guest, and I'm going to let Aaron, uh, you introduce yourself, because <laughs> I just want to make sure everything gets, the, you know, your title and who you are, you know. This way, so because I don't want to, I don't want a technical difficulty and fuck it up. <laughs> there you go. Hello, my name is Aaron. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, you know, title. Who know? I don't really have a title. I mean, I'm one of the two owners of uh, the Bad Agency Distilling. We do smoke wagon bourbon, and that's what we're mainly known for. You know, I mean, when we started, we had the bourbon and the vodka, but it's pretty much all about the bourbon now. Um, and I do all the blending and everything and uh, design everything and just kind of figure it all out. And uh, I've, so I, I don't really have a title, I guess. You're the Instagram guy, though. I am the Instagram guy. That was, that was um, not planned. At all, <laughs> even remotely. <laughs> but that's that's how the that's how the internet works. It's like you find when you're like trying to promote yourself on social media. I do it a lot. It, it's kind of like you find your niche. You know, 
it could have been some other uh, other media, but that's the one that that takes off. And then once it takes off, it's almost like an addiction, right? Yeah. Well, it, it was free first of all, free free marketing. <laughs> And um, because of the analytics, it was like very easy to sort of figure out what worked and what didn't work. Like I still like we have a YouTube channel and I what works on Instagram does not work on YouTube. Like everybody loves the out of the bottle tasting stuff and, and the short reels and all the all the like skits I do on Instagram. But they don't care about that on YouTube. Um when I was doing longer videos, I really like that on YouTube, but it's so hard to do in the space now because it's so busy. I can't like stand there and do a long video the way I used to. But when I started, like my success in the bar business all stemmed from, I was always in the shadows. It was like never about me. It was never like, here's my bar. Check me out. It was always like about the customer's experience and the staff and everything. And so when it came time to do bourbon, you know, this was like 2016 and everybody had a bullshit story like, oh, my great grandpappy died and we found his recipe in his shoe or his last dying words were like, make the bourbon the way I did during Prohibition. I was like, I'm not doing any of that shit. It's just about the bourbon, the way the bars were about the bars. And so everything was just like bottle pictures. And uh I just, I remember it was actually the, the beverage director for the win. I did a presentation for her and she was like, you're the story. Like nobody's talking the way you're talking. I need you. You need to get in front of the staff. And I was like, okay, well maybe I should talk about this stuff on Instagram, <laughs> you know? And it just, it resonated fortunately. And it was like, I was very, uh, I, you know, I, it, it took me a while to get into it and figure it out. And, um, you know, I, it wasn't like, Oh, I want to be a big Instagram star or I want to be the, the bourbon guy. It was always just supposed to be about the bourbon, but you know, we had no money. All our money went into making sure we laid down new fills. So I was just trying to figure it out and I'd, I'd see, okay, when I do these dumb videos, like joking around, people like them. Uh, when I do informative videos about the industry or what I'm doing, they don't get as much likes, but the engagement's huge, and it gets exposed to a lot of accounts that aren't following us. And bottle pictures get all the likes, but it's only people that are following us, and nobody comments, and 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 nobody's like really being exposed to the brand. So I just would try to, you know, kind of figure it out between all those things. And uh, the crazy thing is. Before COVID, I was out all the time trying to sell a brand and or doing events. And you cannot advertise retailers on Instagram. The TTB sees it as unfair, like you're giving one retailer an unfair advantage over another. So the Instagram was really lame for the most part. <laughs> and then there was COVID. And I was like, well, shit, I'm just sitting around smoking cigars, drinking bourbon. I'm a pool. I mean, not everybody has a pool, but I'm sure that's what everybody else was doing. So, and then I was spending, so I was spending a lot more time at home and so I could start posting more. And that's when I started doing the uncut, unfiltered uh, posts about what I was drinking. And then we kind of blew up. So I was spending more time in distillery and no time out in market. So I could really, it was a lot more content because I was doing a lot more that, you know, it just, 
the way things worked out, man. It's crazy. Yeah, and so it, 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 it kind of, um, I, I'd like to also let everybody know that CT is joining us here tonight. Uh, hey, CT. If, I mean, no, but you got to remember that audio, you, you had, you were on there, but you know, nobody could see you on when the audio. So I have to like make a point to let everybody know right. you're here. You're here. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I myself tiny, uh, it's, it's great to have you here, Aaron, but what I was, when you were talking exactly the time period when you were doing that is right when I was getting into bourbon and then deciding to do the podcast, uh, we started the podcast in November of 2019, and, you know, COVID was hitting in March of 2020. So, yeah. you know, at that point, you you know, that March, I was like, we were stunned, you know, because you didn't know what to do. I mean, all of a sudden you're home, and it's like, you know, everybody was, every people weren't working. I was working because of essential services, and... You know, it was just you you kind of got into this tumble, but as you were tumbling, you kind of rolled out of it right into like starting to push a little bit harder because it was everybody was home. <laughs> and so right. when you did the videos, all of a sudden 5,000 people were watching and you're just like, what is going on here? You know, and yeah. you're getting all this the exposure. So that was great. But also. You also talked about how when you first started out and you were going out and you were selling a certain way, right? And yes. the people were very, in my opinion, when I first got into this in, in that time period, everybody was so critical about what bourbon was. It's like, I just mm. remember I'd be on the groups and that people would be like, that's a Finished bourbon, that's not real bourbon, you know, and they just like they and they would hand it out if you were wrong about something, that would those would be our biggest podcasts. If you said the wrong mash bill to the you would just have hundreds of people just bashing the living hell out of you. And then COVID hit and it was going and it started like and everybody started trying different things, right? I mean all of a sudden, the market, like all these, bur the bourbon uh, snobs, you know, what you like to call, they kind of got pushed back out of the way because there was all these new people drinking whiskey and bourbon at home, having them shipped to their house and everything, that they started exactly what, and they started paying attention to what was unique and what you were doing with on your Instagram. <laughs> it was unique, right? Nobody talked yeah. the way you talked. Well, yeah, because we're very trans. Even now, you know, I still get messages about people saying, "You are the most transparent brand uh, I've ever seen." You know, because I talk about everything that goes into what every blend and what I'm doing and all that. And it is funny. So, in 2016, when I was doing tastings and stuff, I'd say I got, "Oh, you're just source bourbon," blah blah blah, and that was. Um, we had already started putting distilled in Indiana from the beginning before the TTB was enforcing it. And then when um, TTB started enforcing it, everybody started doing multi-state blends so they could be a blend of straight bourbons and take the state of distillation off the back. And then they'd be like, oh, yeah, we blend our, we distill our own. And I just had the attitude. I was like, look, if you don't like it, then don't buy it. And if you do like it and you're not going to buy it because if you like it and you think it's unique, 
and you're not going to buy it just because I'm not the distiller. I don't want you drinking it because I don't want you associated with the brand because you're probably a fucking insufferable cunt. And you probably <laughs> walk into the room, Mr. Like, I'm going to annoy the shit out of everybody with my bourbon ideas and things. And I don't want to be a brand associated with people like you. And that was, <laughs> that was like literally, you know, I was like, if you like it, you, you know, look, all I can do is make, do, do what I can. And you either like it or you don't. And if you, if you do like it, cool. Thank you. And if you don't, Hey, you know, go, I like it. Go on to the next one. I mean, there's there's not a bourbon on the planet that every single person loves. I mean, there's styles of, of whiskey, and I always find uh, where it's aged, you know, and different regions, uh, especially with bourbons, and they all kind of have their own, you know, terroir or whatever, and, it, and it's... Oh, and, yeah, everything's different, like, because nobody has an oak farm. So all all your barrels are all the woods going to be different. I see people get obsessed with age. I'm like, well, I can give you a four year bourbon off the sixth floor on a south facing wall that is almost over oaked, or I can give you a twelve year on the first floor that's perfect. You know, it's like it age is relative to warehouse position and temperature swings and, and aging conditions and everything, and. Um, yeah, you know, it's just, uh, but to sort of what you were saying, um, a, a lot changed during COVID because, well, A, first of all, whiskey, alcohol was not sensitive content, content on Instagram yet. So you got a lot more exposure. And then people were buying stuff to put on their shelf and take shelfies and show off their collection. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter if it was sourced or not sourced, or even if it was good or bad. It was just, is it rare? And if it was rare, people were buying it and not even drinking it and taking pictures of it. And everybody's liking their pictures and their serotonin's flowing and they're feeling good. And then all of a sudden, Instagram took all that away by making alcohol-sensitive content. COVID was over and everybody's going back to work. So they're not on their phone all day looking at people's stuff. And then, you know, gas is expensive. People are driving. They don't have as much expendable income as they used to. They're like, well, shit, I should start drinking some of this stuff. And they realize that some of those $100 four-year bourbons that they bought that were rare taste like dog shit. And, uh, (laughs) you know... (laughs) Well, <laughs> CT, do you got anything for uh, Aaron? <clears throat> no, but I, I, I think he's right. It started a, uh, a movement of collectors for sure because they're still doing it today. And even though they may not be posting on Instagram and telling people about their rareness or whatever, there are definitely a lot of people that just go out and look for certain bottles just to have it. They're they're yeah. not planning on opening them and drinking them. and And that's... I guess to each their own. I mean, I think we're all in this, the, the thing that we like to open. We want to open it, try it. I have no idea how many open bottles I have in this room, but it's a lot. And I want to enjoy them with people. And, and like you said, you're going to, you're going to have a bottle of a uh, two, $300 bottle of Elmer T. Lee. You're going to open it and be like, hmm, this tastes pretty much like the other <laughs> stuff I've had. 
Well, and the thing is, it's like opening a bottle doesn't preserve it. There's nothing going on. None of these seals are airtight. Like everything is just for security purposes. And so you can drink it and still keep it forever. As long as, you know, every once a year or depending where you live, you tilt the bottle let the, for a second, let that cork get wet. Or if it's a screw top, it doesn't matter. And uh, it's not going to go bad. And... um so the only reason you wouldn't open it is like if you never wanted to drink it and only had it to sell it, which I don't know. I mean, or or you're waiting for a really special occasion. Yeah. That's, you know. Well, yeah. Like if it's got a date on like a bottling date or a barrel dump date and you know, it's like your kid's birthday or your anniversary or something. Yeah. I mean, I have stuff that I haven't opened yet, but most of the stuff. So how did you, you guys are in Nevada, right? Yes. Las Vegas? Yep. Yep. So how did you end up there and then decide to, you know, make a whiskey brand out of Las Vegas, Nevada? I mean, when it really comes down to it, there's not a lot of uh, brands that are hitting the shelf that are right in that area. Oh, yeah. There's a reason for that. <laughs> so you can't age it. <laughs> it just all evaporates and turns into nothing. So... Uh, you know, like I said, it, it started off with the vodka. And so at the time, I was still splitting my time between California and L.A. And I was trying to figure out what to do. And even at one point, we we're like, oh, we should go to like Central Coast, California, like a Tascadero around there and buy a big ranch or something and just have a big spread. And we we're like, no, we got to get out of California. It's too expensive. Nevada is great for business. We have a great relationship with the city, I like, you know, I wasn't really spending any time in California anymore. I was spending all my time in Nevada because I, and um, so we're like, okay. And then with the vodka, we're like, yeah, and then we could get in the casinos, you know, which the irony of that is, no, you will never get in the casinos. It's all money. You you want to get in there. Like nobody cares about the local brand. It's, you gotta, you gotta spend big to get in there. That has changed with, independent operations like Cosmopolitan, you know, uh, Palazzo Venetian, you know, we're in all those places, but like the corporate compliant places, no. And then it was, um, I had stopped drinking vodka and started drinking bourbon and people were like, Oh, you should do bourbon. And you know, everybody's like, Oh, it's going to be so interesting to see how it ages there. Cause we have really, we actually have cold winters, especially at night, it gets below freezing. And, and hot summers, you know, it's like, oh, what's going to happen? And what happens is everything evaporates. And so when we started the process, we had five fermenters and a Vendome 250 gallon still, which we still have. I, the state allows me to use that for vodka because there is no license for us to distill bourbon on the scale we're doing it. You can be a craft distiller or or if you own a farm like Frey Ranch, you can be an estate distiller, which I believe allows you to do 100,000 cases a year. Um, I think it's 100,000. I don't know if they measure in proof gallons or uh, if it's volume. Like the federal government manage, measures in proof gallons. Like we can't really be considered a craft brand anymore because the Craft Distillers Act covers you up to 100,000 proof gallons, and we sell more than 100,000 proof gallons within six months of the year. Um, so, you know, it was just like, hey, let's do this, and you hire a consultant, and they're like, okay, well, 
here's your setup. We're like, okay, I guess we'll just sell the vodka until the bourbon comes of age. You know, this was 2012, right? Like, or to start in 2010, 2012. We're like, well, you know, you can just go buy barrels. It's like, no, I didn't fucking, I don't know shit. I don't know anything. <laughs> I didn't know you could go buy barrels. And like, oh yeah, you can go buy barrels. And so, um, you know, you know, so there was no real strategy. We just kept trying to work with the, the hand we were dealt. And so it was like, okay, we're going to go to Nevada. We love Las Vegas. We love, we, we want to kind of get out of California, really do it here. And, and then when we started designing the brand and everything, my love, coming from the East Coast, I love the West. I love the desert. It's why I love it here. I, I love it. And so everything was like, it's not going to be like, you know, Las Vegas. It's going to be more Nevada and more Old West because that's what I love here. I love the history of the old Spanish, Spanish America Trail. The fact that Nevada has the highest population of wild horses in the country and boroughs, you know, all dating back to the 1500s from the Spanish. And um, and so that's what we tried to sort of tie into with the brand. And then also coming from the bar business, I always designed my bars to look like they'd been around for 100 years. That way when people would walk in, they're like, how did I miss this place? Like, and they just feel like there's someplace like, you know, it doesn't feel like it, it never gets dated because it already is dated. And... Um, it, it just feels like a place that they should be familiar with, you know? And so I adapted, I adapted that with designing all the packaging and everything. And I tried to make it look like bottles were a hundred years old. And, uh, and then yeah, the gold, that coin in the middle is pretty cool. Oh, but, thank you. Yeah. That's a neat, that's, that reminds me of that old West kind of feel Definitely. So the idea it originated with bottles from the 1700s. They would be rye bottles would be blue with like blue glass, like kind of stuck on the front, and because nobody could read. And and corn whiskey would be clear. And then, but all the bourbon bottles I could find from the late 1800s were amber. And um, and then, but the silver dollar vodka, which I don't have here. That has a replica of the Morgan Silver Dollar where the wax is, and that's that's what I designed it all for. And um, you know, it's just like it was man, it was just like this process. Uh, so we buy these barrels, we get these big giant tanks to put all the barrels in because we're going to dump them. We're going to dump these five year Seagram barrels and pull off those till our stuff comes of age. City never approves the tanks. And and then and then three years, three and a half years goes by, and all of a sudden we're like, hey, you know, we start con- we're, we contract distilled with MGP, but we also bought a bunch of new distillate when we bought those Seagram's barrels. And I was looking at our inventory, I was like, oh shit, those are gonna be four years old. And the whole plan was uh, to take the eight-year barrel, some eight-year barrels, and use the four-year barrels to make it taste like the five-year we liked. And I tried that and it tasted like shit. I was like, this is not going to work. So I just spent, I just spent three days back then. All I had was one location of eight year and one location of four year. And I spent three days blending until I got something I really liked. And I, my business partner, he was, I was like, Hey man, when you be back in Las Vegas, you really got to try this. He was like, I really like this too. And I was like, I like this better than anything else. I think this is like really something special here. 
And so now that we weren't using those tanks, we got all our our um, our permits approved to open. And so we would go to the state. And when we started, there was no distiller's license. You would get a rectifier's license and a letter from the governor giving you permission to distill. And by the time we opened, that was gone because it was a craft distiller's license. So you had to be a craft distiller if you wanted to distill or a rectifier if you wanted to import barrels. And at this point, we had 2,200 barrels in Indiana from what we bought originally and what we had started contract distilling. And so also a guy opened up locally and he was a craft distiller and he answered the question, what will happen to barrels in Las Vegas if you age from day one? Because he lost 50% his first year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The angel share is pretty deep out there. Well, yeah. Not only is it hot, but it's dry. So, you know, that that desert just sucks the moisture from the wood, and then it starts sucking the moisture right out of the... So, you know, there's no doubt that's what it is. And what you have to do to keep it in a cooler place, it's it's almost impossible. Well, the the temperature doesn't matter. You would have to humidify it. And there's, like, no water, you know? And so, um, so people... So it was like the writing was on the wall. You know, we had this binary decision. You want to be a rectifier or a craft distiller? And I was like, well, can we distill the vodka if we're a rectifier? And because, and the state said yes, because you distill vodka, you start with neutral grain spirit. It's, you're not distilling from scratch. They said, yes, you can do that. And I said, well, this is what we're going to fucking do. You know, and like everyone's like, oh, don't release small batch the way you blended it. Make uh, you know small batch four years in a day, and then put your your eight year stuff in an age statement bottle. I was like, this is what we're doing. We're releasing. We're sourcing. We're in contract distilling. There's no way around it. If I'm not blending, I'm not creating anything unique. I'm just doing what everybody that hates on sourced bourbon does. And so, this is it. This is what we're doing. And um, well, but but like. Like you said, uh, you're a blender, okay? So uh, we've had experiences with certain distilleries where their their bourbon isn't the greatest to start off, but then they bring somebody in who's got a really nice palate, understands the market, and all of a sudden the quality from the same distillate that they've been making for, you know, six, seven, eight years, and they start putting stuff in, all of a sudden the quality goes up and it tastes good. And then in one case, they, the the owner let them all go, and now it's back to hit or miss. It's like sometimes it tastes like shit and other times it's okay, but but it because it, that distillate, it wasn't the problem with the distillate. It was a problem with who's blending. Like you said, that first blend, it tasted like shit, right? And yeah. it's just like, oh, my God. Uh, you know, and I've always found, and I've asked a lot of distillers and blenders this, it's like I was uh, tasting something, and they were having us blend it. And on one hand, there was one that had like a chocolate mint, and the other one was like a caramel, right? But when you mix the two together, there was pineapple. Like, 
and there was no pineapple on either one. And all yeah. of a sudden, it's like yeah. strong pine. And that's one of the cool things yeah. about when you do the blending, right? That, that's what I tell everybody because I see these people that talk about blending and they're not blending because they're treating it like they're baking a cake or mixology. And you're not taking these flavors and combining them. And 90% of the time, nothing tastes good on its own. And when you take, when you take everything, they're all different proofs. And when you blend them together, that's going to create a chemical reaction. Because even though you're not adding water, like one thing might be 118 proof, another one's 116, and another one's this. And that chemical reaction produces heat. And it changes everything. And you have to try to figure out how to get each one to interact with the other to cause all the bad flavors to go away. You can't, like, bury a bad – and sometimes everything tastes bad. Everything's, like, bad on the finish. And so you just have to figure out how to get it to all interact with each other. And uh, and I love it. I mean, it's way harder in the wintertime because, especially this past winter, it was cold and humid in Las Vegas, so stuff didn't change when I brought it out here. It was extremely cold in Indiana, so everything contracted, sucked all the tannins and all the impurities out of the wood. And I was, and I was like, man, this is fucking hard. But, you know, now it's summer again. It's like it's super easy. And, um, but, yeah, you know, people are like, oh, you've got the good barrels. I'm like, you come and try these samples. You know, tell me how good they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, there's a lot of people that are picking up. Now, like you also what's nice, now, how are you dealing with when you started, you started buying MGP barrels, like, and you're very transparent. Uh, right. And, and we, and uh, now, though, <laughs> you know, you were there from the, do they, do they cut you in where you can keep going because I know that that's that that kind of that amount of whiskey that was available to you back then has kind of dried up stay with us we'll be right back hey bar and girl fans it's Jim with Madhouse Bar Talk where me and my co-host sit around and talk about the things going on around Madhouse Bar and Grill in Elyria, Ohio the whole conversation is unscripted uncensored and unedited anywhere where you stream podcasts just remember madhouse bar talks baby oh i mean there is no inventory really it's all it's all contracts it's all stuff so then you started you started going there having them make what you want so those yeah. are your barrels and they're all aging and you've caught up and now it's basically yeah. yeah okay especially next year this year this year we have some stuff i bought a bunch of stuff that was like 12 months old that no one was buying because all everybody was doing was buying stuff they could sell because nobody cared about the future they all thought they were going to get bought out we never want to get bought out and so when I was buying all these barrels, uh, my sales rep MGP was like, what are you going to do with these? I'm like, I don't know, dude, the future, you know, like we're going to need them one day. Like we have holes in inventory. And, uh, and then we just started. So we, I bought all that. And we just started contract distilling as much as we could, which really hurts, you know, because you can't sell it. And you, you don't write it off till you put it in the bottle. 
It's a very hard thing to do, especially because you're paying your, you know, it should be like maybe 15 or 20% of your, if that, of your income. But if you're planning for the future, you know, it's like 15, 60%. And so you have all these huge sales, you're not making any money. And, uh, but now, man, everybody's fucked. And, and that's why I can have straight at, you know, low 30s, under 30 with programming and uncut the younger, low 40s, under 40 with programming because it's, I paid day one prices for the distillate. And I mean, eventually everybody could get there, but I don't think they're going to last long enough. You know, 150 brands went out of business in the past six months. And, and when we we're talking about collecting and all that stuff, that price point of over $60, that market has fallen off a cliff. Well, we just had a, a brand that uh, last year we were able to pick up for a single barrel for $129 at Kentucky Bourbon Festival. And that was a stretch on my pocket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially as us as podcasters, we get, a, I mean, I get a crap ton of whiskey sent to me. You know, just to taste and have on, you know, samples. Um, most of the time when people want to, you know, I, I'm all for samples. And I'm so, I, I like the 375 milliliter bottles. Because even overall, because I just keep getting more and more whiskey. Plus, I'm a, 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 I like to go out and get the name brand and keep up on it. Because with the podcast, as the batches come out and the what people per se, you know, generally in the groups want and are looking for, if you do the the tastings of it, you got to kind of keep buying it, you know, keep up right. current. They're not interested in what what was uh, the 2020. They want to know what 2023 tastes like, you know. And uh, right. so I'm out there always looking. But, uh, I mean, now I, I had gotten to the point where I was buying some of these collector bottles, like uh, 300. I think the most I've spent retail uh, for a bottle was $330 out of the, right out of the gift shop. It was signed and everything really nice bottle, delicious, but you know, I, I is a, you know, a $20 bottle of Jack Daniels compo- uh, compared to a $330 bottle. Is that bottle $310 better? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think, I think I love bourbon and I do not think that gap is ever there, you know, but you're paying for the, Beautiful packaging, the marketing, and the special uh, yeah, uh, there's, limited. There's a, there's a lot of stuff where I look at the packaging. I'm like, oh my god, that packaging is like insane. I, I don't, I don't even know what it, what it translates uh, to retail. I've only had one expression that was close to that price, and that was the experimental series for uh, the rye, and that's just because. I bought it at eight years old and it was super, I mean, it's a very expensive mash bill on day one, you know, day one price. I think we pay $1,100 a barrel for that. And bourbon's like $700 a barrel. And so it like, they, it hurt to buy it, but there's only 22 of those in the world. So I was like, okay, we got to do it, you know, but like a lot of my stuff, the limited stuff, the way I price it is not necessarily what you see go for it because i agree with you i mean like a 300 hundred dollar bottle it's not scotch well and, and then it's got to age for like 20 years you know it's like it's bourbon it's aged in new oak it's got hot summers cold winters there's a lot of movement it's 
you know. And there's so many different places it's being done. I mean, and you know, initially when we started the podcast, we we had some Scotch, some Irish, and bourbon, and then a few rye, and then we got really bourbon uh, centered. You know, we were doing the bourbon centered type stuff, and then I started reaching out to regions. But you know, uh, if you know some of the regions, I like the stuff coming out of there, and I like pot stilled. Really good pot stilled whiskey. There's no doubt about it. But then, you know, you've got that. Uh, you're talking about that. I always call it the Kentucky brand, where you got the big bold. Uh, wood, you got the you know the flavor of the char and the wood and the caramels and the you know the dessert kind of bourbons. But then you know, but you, it's funny, like you said, with Scotch, used barrels, used bourbon barrels, and then it's in there and it's in a cooler climate and they can sit there for twenty years and you know it's the fine aspects. But like you said, aging. If you started aging bourbon in, uh, you know, right in the middle of the desert there. By the time it's three years old, there'd be almost nothing left. Yeah, and it would be like an oak bomb, right? All that yeah. would uh, and at a, like a hundred and sixty. Wow! So I've had stuff that I brought in at eight years old, and I let it age for. Oh no, it's ten years old. I let it age for five years, and it came out one hundred sixty proof. But man, it is. It is, uh, I mean, we got like five cases out of the barrel and it's so thick. It's like maple syrup and and it's 160 proof and it drinks like it's 90 proof because like you feel it, like you have something and you're like, oh, oh, hey, hey. but drinking it because it is is all the water's evaporated and all that's left is sugar, fat, and alcohol. And it's so good. But if you brought a but that's starting with something that was 10 years old. If I had a day one barrel and it all evaporated in three years, yeah. it would be like over oak and not aged all, you know, because you'd lose so much so fast that there's not enough contact with the wood to actually to do anything. You know what I mean? But, so, so you're, you're, what you're distilling, contract distilling right now, are you aging it in Indiana too? Oh, yeah. yeah. For, for, uh, for most of the time. I mean, now I have eight year, seven year, and and six year that's been in Las Vegas for a long time that I only use and I'm cut unfiltered because the, the evaporation is so great, the price point's too high for a small batch or anything else. Um, but but even like I'll pull four year barrels, and if they're not ready, we'll let them sit. Uh, and then usually we let them we forget about them, and all of a sudden they're five or six years old. I'm like, oh hey. Let's use these 24 barrels for uh, uncut and filtered. So do you um, go there, pick the barrels that are ready, and then have them shipped to you there? Now, do you do the bottling in Las Vegas? Oh, everything happens in Las Vegas. So I, I, have, an, I have a barrel inventory, and I, and I plan everything. Depending on warehouse location, I figure out when I'm going to pull it. Like all the palletized stuff and the sixth floor is gone before it turns five years old. I just, I burn through all that stuff. Um, and then I have stuff on the second floor and third floor that, I, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll probably won't start pulling that till it's seven or eight years old. And, um, and so we do a truck a week now, about 90 barrels a week. And, um, 
we just try to kind of try to rotate where, where we let barrels sit. And then so when the new barrels come, like we pull, we dump the older ones and, and store the newer ones. But yeah, like all the blending and everything that makes it special happens in Las Vegas. We do all the bottling ourselves. And, and, um, and that's, that's one of the, so when you think about it, uh, your price points, uh, that's an, an expense that some people don't have to have. You have to get you you're you're distilling and aging in one place, and then you've got to get those barrels to the uh, and then age a little bit in another place, and it's not close. Thousand <laughs> miles, twelve hundred miles, isn't it? Yeah, it's not too bad. It's like a you know, but the thing is, it's like because we contract still so much. It all balances out because there's no way I could distill myself for the price that they contract still for me based on water alone. I mean, MGP sits on aquifer. They pull water out of the ground. We, I figured it out. We do 1,200 barrels a month contract distilling. That's over 3,500,000 gallons of water a year for mash. Yeah. If I'm paying the city of Las Vegas for that water... Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you if you were using that water in the desert, they'd they'd have to have uh, uh, days that you can't water anything. You know, no yeah. water days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, so it's like I, I think. I mean, obviously, you know, I can't do something like benchmark foolproof. For twenty five dollars, I don't even know how they do that because well, even top shelf is sixteen ninety nine, and it's I, I I hate to say it I I'll I'll just say it right now it's it's fucking fantastic bourbon for that I, you just go what is going on <laughs> how right. do they do it well and then can you then you don't want to buy it because it's so cheap. You got it. And, and, you know, I'm not drinking that cheap bourbon, even though it tastes really good. And usually it's just sitting over there on my barrel and I'm just like hitting it. And I'm like, I can't tell anybody I like this. <laughs> well, I mean, when you look at something that's like a full proof, like, you know, 125 proof. I mean, the tax per bottle is like 320 to the federal government. And so if you do your basic minimum margins, we're okay. You're spending three dollars and twenty cents to the federal government, so you're going to mark that up uh, three dollars and twenty cents. So now that's seven dollars of your FOB to a distributor, and by that time it gets to the retail, that's like fourteen or sixteen dollars. So sixteen dollars of that price is like tax alone, you know. So it's like, and, and you had to make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Well. Wow. I, I think the one thing that you do well, Aaron, is your price points are, are awesome. Um, Thank you. To, to be from $29 for the entry level, I think uncut, unfiltered in Ohio is $69.99, or it might be $64.95. I had in Kentucky, in Kentucky, I paid $79.99 for that bottle. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's cheaper in Ohio, actually, which is odd, but so, it is. It's not supposed to be because we gave the state pricing so that it would be the shelf price um, in Kentucky so nobody on the other side of the river would get mad. Uh, so it, it should be in the 70s. Maybe somebody was like selling it for cheaper. Um, but yeah, you know, like, look, when everything was hot, everyone was like, you should raise your prices. You should charge $100 for this. 
I was like, yeah, but all this is going to end. Yeah, and also, you know, they say what you should do, and you know what you want it. What you want to do is bring good bourbon to people, and you're not, and you need to make money. I mean, you're shipping and whatever. But you're you don't need to gouge people like some of the places that you know that that there's a gouge in there, and right. when you do that, I just think that that affects the long term aspect of your brand. You, sure. if, well, and you're that trying. That was the goal. Yeah, the, the goal was straight and uncut. The younger was always to make up for the low margins with volume because it's four year. I mean, right now there's three year in it. That'll probably end in two more months or so. Um, and I only did that because I was looking at the market and I was like, man, if we wait till October to really blow this up, it's going to be too late because every people were charging like a hundred dollars for uncut the younger. I was like, what is happening? This is ridiculous. And so. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's, that's your marketing. That's your marketing play. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like uncut the younger it's like I looked at it. I remember looking at that bottle, and I and just quite quite frankly, so how I've expanded out, I haven't. Uh, you know, I drink so many people are sending stuff, so I'm starting to be able to expand out because I'm getting stuff from Texas, I'm getting stuff from Michigan, I'm getting stuff from Tennessee, and that's not places I can go get it, or you know, it's that that distance. Is getting to the point where it's got to be a vacation for me to go out there. You know, now Vegas is a little different because you know every single state has just direct cheap flights to Vegas, so you can right. get there quick. But overall, uh, I honestly, when when smoke when I started seeing smoke wagon on the the shelf, I mean, I had the bottle in my hand twenty times because it's such an intriguing bottle. But I wasn't, I hadn't gotten a chance to taste it. So I hadn't, you know, gotten that bottle. Now, this past November, when I bought the Christmas bottle, I w- it was there and the price point was perfect. And so I'm like, I got to try this. But then I got yelled at by Super Nash. He's a, he was supposed to be on tonight, but he, he had a, a problem, car problems coming home tonight or van problems. But anyways, he's just like, that's not what you're supposed to be buying. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? He's like, uncut, unfiltered. He goes, he goes, what are, what are you thinking? I'm like, what do you mean, what am I thinking? I just want to try the entry level first, you know? And it's just like, but then you get the that marketing of the younger, how you put that. I just think it intrigued people because they yeah. like, you know, you hear so many people like Smoke Wagon. You know, they're, they get so excited about it. There's people, you know, talking about age and everything, Everybody says they want 100-year-old bourbon, but there's vast swaths of people that like Uncut the Younger better than regular Uncut Unfiltered because it has no oak and it has no tannins, so it drinks softer. Well, it does. Yeah, and then when you got A lot of that's the blending. To get a fucking three- and four-year to taste like that yeah. is that no small feet. No, it's and your the, palate. And, and the Uncut that I have here is actually a higher proof than, than the uncut unfiltered. Yeah. The younger is actually a higher proof. So there's two things. One in Indiana, because it's so humid, the proof will go down over time. The other thing is uncut unfiltered. That seven, the seven year that I put in it, that came out of the sub basement. We've had it in Las Vegas for 
almost a year now and it's finally up to like 108 109 but when i got it it was like 102 proof hmm. coming out of sub base well i i've um been taught now that once it's in the barrel there's points where i've tasted some uh people's distillate at you know 36 months you know and you're like well that's that's not that's a younger version bourbon i mean right. two is you know when you get to be straight but and you taste that 36 months and it tastes like a six seven year old bourbon with a yeah. ton of sugar and it's yeah. kind of like it really every every barrel like now when you have 22 you can't it's hard to taste through every barrel but as you find those barrels i mean it's, there's just sometimes it's ready to go earlier because how you know what the weather was you know right. i i'm i'm under uh, a belief that the probably the last 6 7 years the summers of in this country everywhere have been hotter and the winters are still you know just not i, I think they were just average not, not here man we've had cold winters and our summers are like nothing now it's july and then it's over and that's it it's insane so that that probably helps because you're not sucking as much stuff it doesn't get as hot but uh but those 39 month old barrels they saved me in the winter because the four years were so difficult and so over oaked already and then the 39 month ones were like so beautiful and um yeah, and, and to tell you how much the market changed, I I released that. I remember telling my business partner, I was like, I'm gonna put 39 month stuff in Uncut the Army. He's like, oh, well, you know, should we change it every month and like do a countdown to four year again? And I said, no. And he was like, Well, what are the haters gonna say? And I was like, it doesn't matter. I just it feels I said, I said. I can tell you how I feel if I think about waiting till October to really push this when all these barrels start turning four years old. And it fills me with anxiety. I feel like we're going to miss a window. And I can tell you how it makes me feel putting 39 months in. It's going to be great. And um, he was like, okay, do it. I did two posts. One was my video saying, hey, Uncut the Younger is not doing what it's supposed to do. It's too limited. It's too expensive. And I'm going to put 39 months in it. And uh, I'm going to do it so we can crank the shit out of it and get it out there and do programming and try to get it under $40. And I guarantee you it's going to taste good because there's no point in doing all this and pushing it and exposing it to people if it tastes like young dog shit, right? And everybody's like, thank you. You're amazing. This is why we love this brand. Thank you for looking out for us. Thank you. And then I did a post about the first Rare and Limited in over a year and a half winter oak. Two years ago, people have been like, I'm going to trade my kid for that. I'm going to find it. And like, everyone's like, who gives a shit? Oh, I'm never going to get one. And retailers are going to, oh, it's going to go straight. Everything was negative. And if you reverse that, like two years ago, putting 39 months since everybody's like, this brand's dead. It's over. It's done. And, you know, and it's well, like, nobody gives a shit. As long as it tastes good, as long as you make sure it tastes good and using young stuff, as long as 
it brings you to an affordable price point, it's okay. If I was like, here's my 39 month old product for $85, then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, then it's like, what are you doing here? Oh, sorry. I, I wasn't planning for the future and we're still buying aged juice and all that's out there is 39 month old stuff and I'm paying four grand a barrel for it, you know? So here it is for 85 bucks, but because it's all stuff that I either bought young or, or contract still, it's like, yeah, we're doing this, but it's to get more out, make it always available and specifically bring the price down. You know? I think what you saw was the death of the bourbon snob. That's just what happened in the last couple of years. I mean, he yeah. used to be that, that person used to be out there, and now people get so excited over all the different stuff. But like, like I've noticed, and you mentioned uh, that one hundred twenty nine dollar bottle. Uh, the state of Ohio did a pick with the same art label and everything, and it was one forty nine ninety nine, and. For me to pick a barrel, have a barrel pick, and I love the brand, okay? I love the the actual brand. It's one of my, it's a favorite of mine. But that's $79.99. And then right. you do a your barrel pick with a special label and all this, and then it's $129.99. That was kind of my cutoff. And now that it's $149.99, it's still, you know, they've released barrels, and it's all gone before you get there at noon. You know, to the store. And then they've released barrels. That's it. And it was, as of uh, yesterday, still on the shelf, just sitting there. Because I think they went over the price threshold. It's going to be there a while, sitting there for one forty. Yeah. You know. There, there's a lot of stuff that's sitting now. It's pretty great. And we're at a point, I think, where people, like you, I think you said earlier, Aaron, is that People are not going to continue, I think, buying those really, really expensive everyday bottles. They're they are looking for the fifty to eighty dollar range is kind of probably the hot spot. But once you eclipse a hundred dollars, that market's different. Unless it's a collector piece or it's a flipper thing or you know whatever. But for an everyday thing to grab off the shelf that's one hundred twenty nine dollars that you can get readily, I don't think that's happening a whole lot. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting, too, because, like, I'm in some, some bourbon Facebook groups, and it seems like all the real bourbon people have left. Like, I never see anything interesting anymore. It, it It's definitely people that are 100% uninformed consumers trying to put on airs of being, like, a bourbon enthusiast. And you don't see like any mixtures. You don't see any of the Willet stuff. You don't see any rare Four Roses. You don't see any rare like bean products. You don't see anything that's like interesting. All you see is like what, you know, you would expect from like someone that didn't know anything about bourbon. And it's all like stuff that isn't really that good, but because there's cachet behind it. And I'm like, what happened to all the real bourbon drinkers? You know, it's like they've all left these groups or something. Well, they have left a, a majority of the groups. They've gone. Uh, I, I've actually, uh, I belong to bourbon groups because we're, we're shared to like 70 of them right now. And I try and belong to the groups where the admins are, they got the perspective. 
And then, you know, they let me let let us post in there because I we try and bring good content. Not only do I all day long post our content, but I find content from distillers and releases and whatever, and I'll share it. And when they appreciate that, I mean, one, you know, they're trying to this one group was telling me telling me I was spam. I was just posting once every time I did a podcast, I just put a link to the, and they were like, you're spam. And I'm just like, how am I spam? If I'm spam, then every single guy that's in his car with his steering wheel showing you, I mean, is this group just about looking at pictures of what people picked up or what they drank last night? And I understand that's part of it. But when every single, like, you know, post is that. There should be some educational value to being in a group with some cool posts, you know, some writer, you know, some articles and, you know, there's a lot out there on the Internet on everything like yeah. that. The, the post that did it for me, I think, for this one group was someone wrote, what's your favorite age range for bourbon? Mine is like 12 to 18 year. And I was like, oh, my. <laughs> and everybody was like oh yeah i like 25 it's like shut the fuck up <laughs> you get there you have to age it in a sub basement where it never gets warmer than 50 degrees so it's all totally yeah exactly it's all totally artificial all master distillers say five to seven years is a sweet spot obviously there's exceptions depending on floors but seven, eight, a year ago, people would be like, dude, age is relative. Drink what you like. It's all going to vary on the conditions. But everybody was like, oh, it, it was all like just people who didn't know anything. And and it's like all the guys that well, know stuff be gone or something. I agree with that because um, there's a couple <laughs> like when they put the 10 years out or the 12 years out. I always find that, like, if you're, like, uh, for instance, one brand, uh, Rebel, Rebel Yell, right. I always find that the the 100 Proof Rebel uh, and the Rebel, the, the actual, you know, Rebel Yell that's just right on the shelf, that's a harsh, spicy, go to the concert and get drunk off your ass whiskey for shooting, Right. So then they release some of these uh, cast strength rebels and they, they still are cuts and they still have that flavor profile. Okay. And it's that sitting there at six, seven years. And then they released the 10 year rebel and it wasn't even the same freaking bourbon. It was now mellow and smooth, you know, and I don't, or, or silky, it, it, there was the spice of that that of that brand was completely gone. There was no pepper, and it was just like and, and I was I enjoyed it, but it's like you know, like you said, there there's that brand where it is the brand, and then when you start to take it further, you're starting to get into something different, you know. Well, yeah, I mean that's like Desert Jewel. People are always like, "When are you going to do Desert Jewel again?" I'm like. I don't even know how that fits in the profile, really, because I had 35 barrels on the fourth floor that were 10 years old, and they were totally over oaked. And I was like, you know, 35 barrels back then, I was like, what am I going to do with this? So we, I had to get I couldn't even sell 35 private barrels at that time. So I was like, we're going to, I got to get it out. And I even proofed it down to cut down on the oak. And all these people are like, that's the best thing you've ever done. I'm like, well, have you, you when I used to taste it at liquor stores, it was not the best. 
Like one out of 12 people liked it. And everyone else thought it was too oaky and too harsh. But there's, yeah. but that's the, the great thing about bourbon is that, so, uh, you know, the proof hounds, everybody, right. there's these guys where like, if they won't even touch something that's 80 proof, because somehow they're so much better than you that they drink 125, 115, yeah. that but you're just a the 80 proof. Cause if it's 80 proof, it's chill filtered. So it's going to be thin. It's right. not gonna have a it's not gonna be as textured or but I, I so boy. I agree with that, okay? But when you get the app I just last night did a podcast with one of the neighbor women and she drinks but she doesn't drink bourbon because thirty years ago she had a bad experience with whiskey. So I had her on the podcast, okay? And I showed her how to like bourbon and I gave her Basil Hayden, and it was eighty proof, and she was like, her eyes were lighting up and popping out of her out of her head. But right. I got to a Booker's at one twenty five point six, and she's like, "Oh, that's really good." And it's just like uh, that flavor, but it really comes down to your taste buds, because right. I find if you're if you've drank a lot of whiskey, you can't taste what's in an eighty proof because it is thin. You know what I mean? And and so the the you know there's a lot of people who are just coming into it and they can taste it because they haven't for whatever reason their taste buds aren't gone they haven't burned them off <laughs> or whatever and so it's just those guys just need I've I've met a guy that has to have like a certain kind of whiskey because he can't taste the whiskey otherwise right well, and it's just I, a lot of those profounds. You go to their Instagrams and they're drinking it on ice. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the chilled filter. <laughs> they're like, they're like, I only want hazmat. And then you go to their Instagram and they're like, I love this hazmat, and it's on ice. I'm like, okay. uh, yeah, it's not hazmat anymore. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm not going to sit there and say I don't enjoy. Pouring, pouring it on ice every once in a while. I, I find it uh, when I pour it on ice, I'm not looking for that flavor. I'm looking kind of for a refreshing, cool drink. Oh and, yeah, and, and you know, and as the ice melts, it gets waterier and waterier, waterier, and it goes Ace. down easier and easier. I, I blended small batch specifically to be versatile, and the way it opens up on ice, it never gets watered down. It tastes like fruit punch, and. uh and and so for me, uncut unfiltered, I blended that to taste its best neat. And I do not like it on ice because it does get like kind of one dimensional. And um, but yeah, you know, it's like you drink it however you want. Like I don't give a sh- you know. It's like well, I always- well, I I mean I know a bunch of one dimensional delicious, you know, twenty two dollar bottles of. But that's you know that's when I'm at my fantasy baseball or football draft. I don't mind putting that. I like the taste. It's one dimensionally good. And then you're not, look. you know, when you're doing a draft or something, you're not looking. That's what, that's what you're about to drink right now. I mean, it's not super complex. Right. But it's good. And, you know, hey, if you're out, it might be nice to drink something 92.5 proof and not 117, 118 proof. So you can have more than one. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And try both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and that's what I always try and tell people, you know, some, like for me, I can't really settle on something that I really like because all the bottles, if you, when you're here, most of them are open because I've had to taste them. 
and tell people what I, what 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 we thought. But then to revisit it, it's almost impossible because I've done a Monday night podcast. I'm doing a Tuesday night podcast. I'm doing a Thursday night podcast, and then. Um, when I go up, uh, then some, I got to, we're going to be with friends on a Saturday. Well, if I'm drinking full out and I'm trying to empty these bottles, I'm dead eventually. <laughs> so well, you, when I'm at home drinking, I want to get unfiltered because I want to savor it and pick out flavors and everything. But if I'm out doing events, I'll drink straight or small batch because I don't, I'm talking and I'm being social and I'm not, I don't want to sit there and pick, I just want to. Drink something yummy, like you said, right? And I don't have to think about it or pick out flavors. So. Or or control yourself as much because you can be drinking that and then you can have a couple with everybody opposed to when you're doing uncut. Yeah. All of a sudden, and it's funny because it doesn't matter who we are, we've all been bit. <laughs> it's like, how the hell did you wake up the next morning and you're like, oh, God, that should not have happened. So... And you can, Aaron, what's, what's the so not to get off that, but the the future for the brand? What's your, what's your vision going for the next couple of years? What are you what are you targeting? What are you looking at doing? Well, you know, try, trying to get in every state now that we have the ability to, to bottle more and our inventory is coming of age. Um, especially, you know, by the end of the year, beginning of twenty twenty four, we'll be in our new facility finally that we bought that lands. Fuck. I don't even know. Maybe 2021. And that's going to be awesome. It's four and a half acres, a block from the stratosphere. And so we'll be able to do tours there. I mean, it's an incredible piece of property. It's bungee jumping. What's that? Bungee jumping off the stratosphere. Yeah, well, uh, strippers with full auto machine guns and... uh, (laughs) Petting zoo for the kids, you know. (laughs) You have the whole experience. Yeah. And so, and that will give the brand more exposure, you know, because you can only go so far with with Instagram and everything that we really want to do. And so people always like, hey, how much you want to do? And I was like, you know, so it's like uh, not really fun anymore. Then we'll scale back a little because the whole reason I got out of the bar business and got into this was well a the bar business the lifestyle has expiration date due to age for me i didn't want to do it anymore and also i'm not relevant i don't know what kids want i'm not one i don't understand what they want you know like people tell me hey we're going to do this at the bar i'm like that's the stupidest shit i've ever heard and it's totally (laughs) successful you know so and, and i don't really have that lifestyle anymore i have a bourbon lifestyle i've like to sit alone and drink and smoke a cigar. And, um, and then also it, it, it's when I wasn't part, when I stopped partying and everything, I just sort of realized that the bar business, there was no creativity. I was just managing shit. And with this, I'm always being challenged. And I can be like, Hey, I want to design a t-shirt or I want to design a new expression or do a new label or even the blending. I'm always learning something blending and so it, it's just, I'm always being intellectually challenged and there's, I like working and I'd die if I retired, I would, I'd enjoy it for about four days. But, but you, but technically it is work, but you enjoy it so much 
That yeah. that's like with the that's why the podcast we're I'm we are setting this podcast up so that in a couple of years when I retire from my day job, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, I've already been really antsy and wishing because if I was doing it full time, I could do so much more. You know, right. and at this point, I can only do what I you know. There's a bunch of times where I have a bunch of ideas, and you know, it's getting to be eleven o'clock at night, and when I was younger. I'd be gone till one in the morning and finish it all up. And now it's 11 o'clock at night. And before you know it, it's 11, 12 and I'm sound asleep (laughs) because we're not getting younger, but it's so much fun, right? That's what it, what it comes down to it when you're joining. So you're doing, you are almost technically retired because you're doing what, (laughs) no, you're doing what you love. There's a lot going on all the time. Right. But uh, but who but you said if you stopped you'd die, right? Yeah, if I stopped I'd die. You know, there there are moments where I lose the balance and I'm working too much, but th- those are getting more and more temporary and especially the more successful we are and then once we move and I have places to actually put people, I can hire people to do the things I don't want to do. And just blend and do the fun stuff and plan big picture things. And um, yeah, you know, because, and then, and I love it. And like, and I, we've turned down big offers. Like, you know, people are like, oh, are you next? And like, they came to us first, man. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I don't, what would I do? I mean, and you, it's like the money is insane. Like, you know, because we're still not really, we're, we're, we're doing okay, but, Jonathan and I, my business partner and I, we're not making like big money yet. That'll happen, you know, within six to eight months. But, you know, if you sold all of a sudden, you have more money than you can spend in a lifetime. And people are like, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't, you won't take the money. You're stupid or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, one day that money will be nothing because I have confidence in the brain. Right. And the other thing is, it would just make everything disingenuous in my opinion like I really we got here with the support of the fans and I just feel like everything would have been bullshit and I wouldn't feel good about it like hey thanks everyone see ya you know um, because there's no way we could do it the way we do it if you saw we would lose the soul of the brand and Mm -hmm. you know because they and then also it's not like I could sell and walk away they would want to keep me uh-huh. You know, well, I mean, Penelope, straight up, Penelope, they did it, they whatever, they were doing it, and then they they're still there. <laughs> they didn't they didn't just kick them out, right? They're not still there. They're, they're there for like another year, and then they're gone. And then they're going to be gone to get the numbers up, and that's it. And once they get the numbers up, they don't even have to be there for you. If they get the numbers to a certain point, they're they gone. They're gone. Okay. Yeah. Do they want to be gone? I think so. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I I've met them. So you've you've actually talked to them? Uh yeah, when I was in Illinois. Okay. Cool. That's I actually know, I can appreciate that, Aaron, that you you're invested in it like you are, because I mean, again, if it was about the money, number one, you'd be selling the bottles for more than you're selling them for. <laughs> you know, let, let's be honest. It's it's not just about the money, it's about a love of something that uh that at the end of the day, 
you're fulfilled. You feel like you're doing something that means something that you have something that, that has your name attached to it. Your, your face. attached to it. It's funny. You just said feel fulfilled. And I always, you're the, that's the first time that like anyone's put a word to it, but it's such an obvious word because I always talk about if I sold, what would I have? I just have money. Money. I, I wouldn't have anything, and I always are like, "Oh, I don't know if it's ego or or what to be the smoke wagon guy." But it is, it is, it's a fulfilling experience. You well, know? just the fact that you do Instagram, you know, you did Instagram, it tells yeah. me you have an ego that's being <laughs> no, but but not a not an overinflated ego. You basically thrive on doing something and being successful now. And what's right. awesome is you're not selling. And I really, I, I really appreciate that aspect. And not that I would have any, if you did, I, you know, there's so many people that did it and then the brand goes and, and you know, then there's a lot of money, but, but if you guys take it to that next level, not only will you have your ego still intact, you'll have all the stuff and all, and, uh, and all the jobs, but you also have the money. And it's yeah. like you have it all that way, yeah. but you got to be patient. And, you know, it, it, yeah. if, if you sell, you have one thing. If you sell, you have one thing. You have money. money. Yeah, and that's it. And if you keep it, you have your employees, you have your friendships throughout yeah. the yeah. industry. And they, and they have a great life, you know, because we have, you know, I might not be making tons of money yet, but the company has tons of money and I make sure they're taken care of. They all get paid a lot. They all have like the best benefits you can get. They all have, uh, you know, um, what do you call? Uh, they all have pensions. They all have life insurance. They all have everything. And uh, I'm pretty fun. <laughs> pretty fun. Yeah, I'm fun to work for. And we've, we've got a good team. And, I, and, you know, it's cool. Like you feel like you're making a difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, this is the first time we, we've met or, or even talked. I mean, I don't think we've even talked on Facebook, but, you know, CT set this up and I really appreciate it. But I can tell you one thing. It's kind of like what was, behind, you know, meeting you <laughs> and then your personality and everything and then how you're doing something. You've got everything. And then uh, now... When I go in to purchase a bottle or see a bottle, I'm going to be wanting to purchase it because, I, you know, and that's how that that works. And I think there's a lot of people that just, you know, watched here on Facebook. And then also as we put it up on YouTube and out there, we'll get the you get the word out. And when you understand somebody who's put what you're putting behind it, you know, and there's places, you know, big places, you know, that have families and you see them putting the same thing behind it. You know, they're, right. they they do a lot of stuff. Although the, the big conglomerate might be running everything at one level, they're still running what the quality is. And you have that same kind of thing, you know, going where and it, it, it's kind of exciting to see how passionate you are. And when you tell your story. Oh, thank you, man. And like, look, it's like I did. um I did a post on my Instagram. I did this huge event in Illinois at Finney's. I was the only brand owner behind the table. And it was a two-part event. 
The first is all the Vinnie's employees from all 30 whatever stores they have. And then it was all their whiskey people. And so all these other owners were there and they had like brand ambassadors behind the table. I'm like, well, that's what big brand, you know, because these guys, they, they were like, well, I want to be like a big brand. Well, then what's separating you from a big brand? If you're not having a real connection with your fan base, then there's no, why would they choose you over a big brand? Especially, I mean, let me tell you, big brands have been cranking out the juice. You know, they're, I might be ahead of the game with Uncut the Younger or whatever, but they'll all get there. And, and then all of a sudden that will be the market. And, and I, you know, hopefully I will be still perceived as a, you know, an individual who it's my palate. I'm there. You know who's doing it. You know who's blending it. And that's what will separate me. But then you'll have all these other brands and they're not going to have any cast strength bourbon in that price point. And it's just like, well, you know, because the big brands, they have advantages and disadvantages. Their disadvantages, it takes them forever to act. They're so slow. The advantages, they got money, man. And money it doesn't, it's not just, oh, well, we can lay down all this juice and we can reach these price points. They can buy all the data. They can buy all the data from distributors. They can buy all the data, all the Nielsen data from stores. They are <laughs> totally in tune with what the market is at right. all times. Well, I there mean, but no they, can, they can even take your bourbon that you, you're like, just let's say uncut, and they can get a, they get a bottle, they can analyze it from a chemistry level. And if they want to produce something that's similar, they can do it if they want. That's how, uh, you know, uh, that's I, how detailed it gets. I don't know if that's real because, you know, when I do Uncut, we'll do four batches, all the same blend that have the letters and every time. It's like, a little bit different. Right. Well, now, once again, that's what that's. See, you exist in what the industry has evolved into because up until the 90s, consistency in a brand was the hardest thing to do. I mean, you know, to make that year after year taste exactly the same was a very difficult thing to do. You had to be skilled with a great palate and an understanding of what you what you did. And then I mean, the yeah, 90s... That's, that's what I try to do is straighten Uncut the Younger to differentiate them. You know, they're always... They're your pal. They're, you're, they're your familiar friend. Right, you always know what to expect when you know when you when you get it. So then, when you start making those blends, you're trying to get that same. You're trying to stay consistent, but with the uncut people, there's so many people that have jumped in, especially the younger people who love the diversity of that. Yeah. And and I love the fact that when I'm tasting through some of these newer, the, because of the aging process right now how the climate is in their certain areas i find that the bourbon from year to year has been getting better even on the low end of the brands because of the fact that those barrels are aging the the way that that you you haven't had any weird weather phenomena for whiskey (laughs) you know what i mean you've had you've had like the extreme end of the best of it and it just keeps staying there getting a little bit hotter you know what I mean? Well, I also think that, you know, blenders are finally getting 
prestige and, and yes. Because what, yeah. what they don't understand about the still master distillers is those guys are chemists, you know, and and people are like, why don't you distill, uh, you know, besides the fact the water and everything is like, if I was going to distill myself, I would hire somebody. That is not my forte. Right. I'm not a guy who wants to sit there and create a chemical reaction every day that's identical to the chemical reaction before. It is very hard and you have to have the personality for it. I do not have the personality for that. I have the personality for <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Give well, me all this stuff, man. Let me mix it together and see what happens. Well, you know? I mean, that's why there's like, you know, old Forrester. They 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 hire young women to be the blenders. I mean, their their palate's phenomenal. So they they can produce some really good. They get all the shit and you can, you know, it's when it's distilled properly, then right. it comes down to what you release it to, right? Yeah, and and uh, yeah. I it, look look what they did for Freddie No at Jim Beam. I mean, they yeah. built they built it, named it after his dad, but that's his distillery as far as what he can do because he was trying to do it on the on the big stills, and he he would just the maintenance people would just like go crazy because you know they have it all set up to produce Jim Beam or Booker's or you know. And it's just what they produce every day, and he's trying to produce, you know, you know, bourbons with an extra grain of you. Know, you throw rice into the the whole picture, it doesn't distill the same way, you know. And that's why they built that distillery. So it's exciting times, right? Yeah. Well, that that was the thing too. Like when I went to MGP for the first time, and they're like, "Oh, you want to meet Greg, the master distiller?" I'm like, "Yeah, where is he?" Is he like? rubbing grains together, you know, is he in his overall sniffing the distillate? They're like, no, he's in the control room looking at the computer screens. What are you talking about? And you go <laughs> to the control room and there's all these computer screens and the computer yep. screens have the chemical, in real time, the chemical composition of the distillate because they have a methanol sniffer. And then you go, so they're making sure the chemical composition of the distillate is exactly the same every time. And then you start thinking, well, hey, you know, if there's acetone in it or methanol, people, it's gonna, people are going to go blind and die. So it's kind of, I would want a methanol sniffer telling me when to do my heart cuts and not my temperature or like smelling it and tasting it, you know, because you know, and, and, that's, and, and that's what you want. You want that distillate to be exactly the same so that when it goes into the barrel, you can have some sort of idea. That's where the magic happens. And so I think if those master distillers didn't have the skills that they have, there's just too many variables. It'd be too unpredictable. Well, you know, you know that that's like modern day distilling. Okay. But you still need somebody who understands what, you know, like what they're trying to do. So you can't just like, you hire the distiller and tell them this is what you need to do. You just match these little numbers and they're on the screen. It's like you need somebody who like is like looking to take those numbers specifically they've they've distilled before and then make their process that they've come up with perfect. And that's just kind of like I've I've just seen some really you, good you need someone at the tail end of it taking the finished product. And knowing what to do with it because everything's going to change depending on the weather. Oh yeah, again, nobody has an oak farm 
you don't know like where that oak was grown or what kind of flavors it's going to impart and uh and and sort of do warehouse management deciding when to pull what depending on its location and all that stuff well know? the cool cool thing is is uh one of our friends of our we know greg schneider and he's uh doing bringing back the chicken cock brand but one of the things he did was because he was uh head of the cooperage at brown and foreman he got a west virginia company to make the great barrel company and they're but he basically kind of told them how to set it up in exchange for he basically picks every stave for his barrels from wood uh, uh, oak that grew on the shade side of the mountain that they pulled out. And then he picks every single one and he keeps the consistency of the tree that he Wait, picked. How many barrels does he do? Six, he's doing 600. He does 600 uh, bourbon barrels and 600 rye barrels. Now, this year they went to, I think they, they went. Um, 900, 300 on the bourbon. Yeah, well, and the- I, I do 1200 a month. I don't think we could pick this. Shit. Oh no, no. He knew, he, he knew that eventually would end, but he basically did the C and it's like, he initially started distilling at, at Bardstown bourbon company. And it, right. it basically had, the, it was him, Nick Smith and, uh, Steve Nally all three of them. So you had like three master distillers working on getting the per- perfection of this. And he was just buying regular barrels. But for the last four years, he's been doing this with the barrels. And I'm just, uh, they just switched over to the barrels that they were purchasing from from uh, what they were doing before that, where they were uh, blending a little bit of some of the younger, their younger stuff with stuff that they had uh, purchased from, you know, for uh, sourcing. But right. now, this year was the first chicken cock that was 100% their four-year, um, you know, out of the barrels that they just purchased normally. But like you said, when when the stave companies are making the barrels, you know, they're not, like, trying to keep the tree separate. It'll You could have all the, the staves come from all different trees. And if oh, that's wow. the case... There's never a time where it's all the same, and that explains always the difference of the taste of the whiskey, right? Aaron, since you're sourcing through them, do you have a choice on where the barrels come from, or do you have to use what they set up for you? I have to use what they said. I mean, if I wanted to pick, uh, I could do, like, you know, maybe some special runs where we would do and pick the barrels, but... You know the, the cost. I'm sure would be exponentially higher. Yeah. So by sourcing, not only not not only sourcing the the liquor, you know, the, the bourbon from them, but you're also sourcing the barrels through them as well. Yeah. So they primarily now it seems like they primarily use Speyside and Independent Stave. I really don't see Calvin too much more uh, anymore. Um, I'd have to go back and look at my inventory. I know they're palletized stuff. It's all space side, all independent. I can't remember which one they liked better. And then I'm the only supplier that gets to specify side fill racked. So all my contract distilling is side fill racked. And doing 1,200 barrels a month, that is the maximum side fill rack they can do of a single mash fill. So all the 36% rye that is racked in the old secret warehouses is mine. So what's your what, on your distillate? What's your mash bill on your bourbon? Oh, it's there, the thirty six percent rye, four uh, percent barley, sixty percent corn. 
That used to be the heart of Seagram's. That's where that comes from. Okay. And then what's your barrel char? Four. Four. Because what I pick up that, 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 that smoke wagon has is that I can taste the char that's yeah. in there, you know. And it, it yeah. definitely, um, now with this. I like, to, I like to blend out the tannins but leave the char. So it's got like that char on the back of your tongue. There's like a little bit of bitter black tea, but it never gets to that point where it's like really tannin heavy. I would say that's exactly what I, you've just explained exactly what I'm tasting. Because I pick up the char and it almost reminds me that it drinks like a scotch. A little bit like a scotch. It's got that, you know, now I can tell you this particular bottle. Right. I'm picking up the char with a little bit of a fruity note. Yeah. There's a little, but this bottle, I pick up the char with a chocolate caramel note. So that, the, the, the Christmas straight, that should taste the same all the time. The uncut, what matches it? The un, the, it's the 168D. Is it 168? So is that summer? It was a bottle January 26, 2023. Okay, wintertime batch. Yeah, so it's going to be heavier and earthier and have deeper flavors. Okay. So Mine's batting 66. 66? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that tells you right there how long he's been drinking your product. There you go. It's funny. I was just talking to someone, and this guy, he said his bourbon group was like, Oh, Smoke Wagon has done, uh, it's gone so downhill in quality. He's like, Okay, well, Aaron says the best batches are from like beginning of like summer 2022 and uh, this year because I fucked with them way too much when there was hype behind the brand. I was so stressed out every time I was doing an uncut blend. I would keep blending past where it was ready just to make sure it was the best it could be. And finally, I said, fuck it. I really like this. We're going with this. And I said, consistently, they're the best now. And he said that all the new batches in a blind taste, the newer batches were chosen over the older batches and even uncut the younger. He just threw it in, not telling anybody. And people preferred uncut the younger over the old batches. So, you know, it's like, I'm like, well, shit, I should sure fucking hope so. You know, I mean, I've been doing it for seven, eight years now. I hope I've gotten better. And uh, our inventory is so vast. You know, people like talk about old uncut batches. Like we're using like 50 and 40 year old bourbon. It was still his four and eight year, you know, and now it's a year and and six year, sometimes five years, seven year and eight years. So it's not like, it's not like it went from being like this and oh my god, they no longer use that 20-year-old bourbon. They're using four year. It's like, yeah, it was always four year. And the craziest thing is when I learned that people don't know what age tastes like, is during the hypiest hype of the brand, I did uncut batches with no four-year and sometimes no four five-year. And everybody was like, these uncut batches are so young and so harsh. Oh my god! And it, I was like, "Actually, it's all old juice." And the reason, <laughs> and you don't know what oak tastes. You know, these people don't know what oak tastes like because most old stuff is charcoal filtered or chill filtered. 
And so it removes a lot of the tannins and all you're left with is like what you were saying, you know, an hour ago, it's a very smooth, you know, yeah. and they don't understand how, what oak tastes like or what age tastes like because they're not drinking unadulterated stuff. And so it's just, I mean, and by the way, and that was helped me with the evolution of Uncut the Younger. Because when I first did Uncut the Younger, I too was like, oh my God, I'm calling Uncut the Younger. And I tried to leave some age in it. And everybody's like, it's too young, it's too harsh. And I was like, oh, well, let's see what happens when I blend all the age out and just 100% fruity time, no oak at all. And, and uh, like, let's really make it a cast rank version of straight, maybe some char, but no oak, no bitter black tea, no tannins. And, and now everybody loves it. You know, and it's a, uh, it's a trip. So, well, yeah. so also, you know, you, you just look at what's behind you. I mean, it, that's crazy. You've got, and so you kind of understand the market in the fact that you're never going to make everybody happy. Like you said, no. you, you know, but at the same time, there's so much of a vast difference of palettes of what people want in these whiskey pockets. Right. So what opened me up to it is I, I went on a bunch of uh, picks with the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. We've done a couple picks ourselves. I went on a couple group picks. And when you're on a group pick or you're picking that one barrel, you're looking for a special barrel, something unique, yes. maybe not even on on brand, but you're looking for you know big, bold flavor or just something that's oh, really complex. Weird. Weird and funky, you know, that's what I think single barrel should be. Yeah, but then you go on a pick with the state of Ohio. <laughs> and actually, I did it with Greg Metz for Old Elk. You know, he took that whole, I mean, basically, they don't say it, but he basically produced a malt, a high malt uh, bourbon. I mean, it's the malt's 34%. It's the rye that's down. And then, you know, with the with the corn and uh when we were picking we picked we we had 40 barrels to taste through there was finished barrels there was wheat whiskey there was rye there was you know and we went through 40 and when you're picking for this the whole state of ohio you're not picking for that one barrel they basically picked 36 of the 40 barrels and there were just a couple of them that you could tell were off but then when I when I talked to Jim Jim Canepa, who's the head of OHLQ, I, I you know I asked him, and he's like, there are so many different palettes in the state of, of Ohio. We just have to make sure when we're picking barrels, if someone offers it to us, that we know they're gonna buy it. But we have to make sure that it's. Hey, by good. the way, that's why I go through every barrel and approve what is going to be offered as a pick and what's not. Because I know there's going to be somebody out there with a shit palate and they're going to like some off barrel for some stupid fucking reason. And that 99% of the people aren't going to like it. And it has my name on it. And they're going to try it and go, well, this is terrible, you know? And so I can't let, I will not let that happen. No so way. now, now you want me to come out to Vegas and do a pick with you? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to be fast. There's yeah, because no, it'll evaporate. No yeah, don't, don't bring a notebook and start writing down. It's like yes or no. Move <laughs> on. 
Yeah, that barrel you wanted is half gone in an hour. It's already, it's, yeah. Oh, my God, man. When I used to sneak bourbon groups in back in the day, they'd show up with their notebooks and everything. And I'm like, I'm like, guys, you're on vacation. I'm not on vacation. Like, just please, like, tell me which one you like better. Like, let's keep it moving. And they're all like, you taste the cherry. Oh, I think I taste the cherry. I mean, it's like, dude, you either like it or you don't. It's like, come on. Yeah. I've been doing these videos and people are like, oh, I'd love to do that with you. I'm like, we just did 24 barrels in 35 minutes. Okay. It's like, you know, you would slow us down. We got to get this shit done. And, and, uh, you know, because it's either good or it's bad. If it's bad, it doesn't make it. If it's good, it makes it, you know? And, um, but yeah. And then also back to the weird part, like there was one, there was a group where I handpicked a barrel for them. Because it, it tasted like it was infused with jalapeno. And I gave them two. And they picked the one that was, like, really delicate and soft. And I was like, why are you guys picking that one? I, I only kind of gave you two just so you had a choice. But really, there was no choice. It was the jalapeno barrel. And, like, well, this one we could drink every day. I'm like, I got fucking all these other expressions you could drink every day. Why would you want your single barrel pick to be something you could drink every day? That should be like special you, time. You want to drink that bottle and know that that's where it came from. Yeah. There's only so many bottles of it. It's like memory in a bottle, you know? It's like that's the one you want to bust out when you're in the mood for that. Like well, if you want them to drink every I day. Agree. I agree. I agree. It's like it, it. It's like when you pick for our group, okay, there's ones you know that will just sell. It's just like, well, that one will sell. Everybody will love that one. And then there's that one that that's sitting there that was all complex. And it was like the most unique kind of thing. And it was changing and doing all this shit. And I'm like, that's the one I want. And everybody's like, well, but you could sell that one. And I'm like, I, I want people when, when you're doing picks to think that you're going to be getting them something different than that they can just... You know, it, if they want something that just sells and it's just a version that's right on uh, yeah. a flavor profile of the actual small batch, it's like, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as long as there's nothing unpleasant, like exactly. even the barrel, like we're picking today, Ford didn't make it because they didn't taste good. But there was weird ones, but everything was good. You know, it was just like, whoa, there's a lot going on here. But it wasn't nothing was unpleasant. You know, but I, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's like if you want something smooth, just don't go, you know, yeah. drink a regular coffee. Why are you on a barrel pick tasting barrel strength bourbon if you want it to be smooth? No. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I think it should be interesting. Alan Bishop uh, from the Spirit of French, look, he's the distiller there. He, he did a video on, he goes, you should never use smooth as a, a description. Of, he goes, as a distiller, it's like, what the fuck? fuck does that mean <laughs> tell me what I mean, smooth means easy drinking you know no bite i mean again it's like when you, when you give uh when i give inexperienced bourbon drinkers all the core expressions they think straight is the most expensive because it's the easiest to drink and so they associate that with like having no bite is luxury you know and uh yeah, well, and then I also find if you got if you have women, they they they'll like make faces at eighty proof, and they'll be like, oh, like that's so hot. And then you give them a hundred and twenty five proof, and they're like, oh, I like that. <laughs> it's just like it's it makes 
Nothing ever makes sense, and that's what I love about whiskey. It's like you could be, you know, you're doing for a consistent kind of thing and really putting a lot of time and effort, and it, it's showing in your products. So, you know. Oh, yeah, it's still a lot of fun most of the time, you know. I'm excited to see more of it in Ohio. I think you were in Cleveland, what, a few weeks ago? Yeah, it, it was a little unfortunate. Um, the, the broker kind of treated my trip like a normal brand coming to town. And so oh. we did way too much on-premise sales focus when I should have been doing tastings and bottle signings. And he was like, oh, we'll do that next time. I'm like, dude, I'm not a brand ambassador. I'm the owner of the company. I, it's like, I, there's only 12 months a year, and look at how many states I'm in. When do you think I can come back? Like, it's not going to be next month, you know? It's like, it's just kind of a wasted opportunity. And the state, I told the state, I was like, hey, I felt like this was a wasted opportunity. We should have been doing this. And they're like, yes, that's exactly what you should have been doing. You should have been doing tastings at you know, liquor stores, agencies, moving product so that your 45 day sales goes up. So we order more. It's all an algorithm. And then everybody can get more if it's, you know, if these, if these on-premise places are buying one or two bottles a week, that's not going to change the algorithm. And I was like, yeah, the fans were kind of bummed because nobody got to see me. And, and she was like, we were bummed. You know how long we want to get in the state, want to get you in here, and nobody knew you were here, and we didn't get to meet you. Like, no one was happy. But yeah, I was in Columbus and then Cleveland. So next time you come, yeah, let us know. let us know. We'll do a pre-podcast before you come, and then okay. we'll meet you where you're at and promote it. Because honestly, like I said, when people meet you. So that's the most that's the most important thing. Although you're at in all the states, they you have to do it there and they meet you because and then they know your story because I find there's a lot of brands that launch here in Ohio and it, and people walk into the store and they see it and they're like I know nothing about that. And then they're like, exactly. "Well, yeah. I do know I saw that guy, you know, and yeah. that's why Instagram's so important. They might that might help you out because uh, I saw that I saw him on Instagram. I'm gonna try that bottle, and that's the key to that's the key to everything, right? Being there and connect. There's no there's no there there's no substitute for being there and connecting with people. Boots on the ground. Yeah, it's you no. Know, I mean that's how way it's been done forever in this industry, and it's still a very important thing, but now you got social media. So when you got boots on the ground, people are like, I always wanted to meet you. <laughs> social media is good to generate like hype and uh, recognition and, and get, get, get it in the stores, but you got to go and like connect with the fan base and everything. To, to, and, and, and dinners, dinners are huge yep. because people will just go People will go to the liquor store to meet you, specifically for, for me. Right. People will go to dinners just because they go to all the dinners that restaurant has. And so they're being introduced to the brand for the first time, and they're here, and they're like, oh, my God. This was the best one I've ever been to, you know. 
Because all they're going, fuck, 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 blah, 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 you know, and like, and usually it's robots, like, oh, we create the yeast, this is the best yeast, you know, and all this stuff, and, and he just, like, even when I, when I was in Kentucky, everyone was like, thank you for being a real human, you know, <laughs> like, doing stuff for, like, the Louisville Bourbon Society or whatever, it's huge, it has, like, tons of members, so all these brands want to get in front of them, and they just send, like, a brand ambassador who's like, meh, meh, meh. Like, yeah, dude, we can read all this shit on the website. You know, you're not, you haven't told us anything new. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just like that we do um, Kentucky Bourbon Festival. And it's just such a great festival. Uh, if you, I mean, not just for, for a brand, but to go there, all the people that are in Kentucky that are associated with making it, they're there. They're right. on premise, you know. Fred No, uh, you know, uh, Dan McKee from Mitcher, all the people, may, they're all there. And it's like, it's not a normal festival. Like you said, you go to a normal a festival you might that you go to, you might be one of two people that are selling their brand that are part of making it. And right. then the other people are reps and they're just pouring in it. I find they have a value. Because you get to taste the whiskeys that you yep. might not ever taste, you know. That's that's good for stores, you know. Like like uh, if you can't get to every single store and the, the product's not really moving, yeah, you know, hire a rep to just let people try it. Right. They don't even have to know what the brand's about. They just if they try and go yum, oh look at the price. I I that tastes good and that price is great. I'll buy it. I don't need to know the fucking story. But if you're going to a whiskey specific event, I mean, I'm not going to go to alcohol events anymore because there's people there that are there for beer or whatever or rum. And they're like, which one will get me fucked up the fastest? I'm like, oh my God, the time is way too valuable for this. Okay. That's not what bourbon's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. But, but like bourbon whiskey specific events and everybody's like there for, you know, yeah, they want to try it. That's where I want to be, you know, if I'm not doing a smoke wagon specific event. We, but yeah, like the store stuff, like doing bottle signings is awesome. But for me to go to like all these stores and do tastings, it's like, that's not, anybody can do that. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, you, I think you would do well at somewhere like Bardstown where you could get your name out there in a positive way where there's 50 other brands, but people would meet you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's the key. They meet you. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. bottle signing and whatever. I mean, that, that was like when I did that one whiskey fest at Benny's. I was like, I was like, man, we didn't send you guys like uh, table covering or or like a little. There was no smoke wagon, anything. And they're like, we, you don't need it. You're behind the table. Yep. <laughs> It's important. I mean, you know, brand recognition is by you just as much as the bottle or, you know, and, and a lot of brands don't have a face to go with the brand. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Or they try to fabricate it or like I've seen pictures like because we're successful, you see like these owners like rolling barrels around and brand new clothes and brand new stuff. <laughs> yeah. Not nah. how you look when you roll a barrel around, dude. And you will not see the pictures of me anymore because I did all yeah. that shit and I'm done. Like I guess <laughs> he's just know. done. You're you're out west, so you pro do you know Seth from Broken Barrel? Uh I met him once, yeah. 
So Seth's a great guy, and, and that's the one thing I can appreciate about Seth is you know he's not he's not out there in a suit and tie breaking barrels and putting stuff together. He's like you. He's he's working his butt off and trying to create a brand that uh, he is the face of. So I am not. I don't roll barrels around anymore, though. Those days are over. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's called that's called smart. But, but the the question everybody wants to know is: Does the eight track player really work? Oh yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the only the sad thing is I bought a seventy three an Alpine seventy three ninety for my eighty eight IROC which was expensive and I sent it out to get it fixed and it ate my deaf left uh, hysteria tape, which is like a super rare, you know, metal, like what is it? CRO two tape, like, and it sounded so good. And then it stopped. Oh my God. Did you just, you just brought back memories. Last last Tuesday we were at the deaf leopard concert. No, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. that was oh, Def, they didn't lose a step, Def Leppard. We it was Motley yeah. Crue and Def Leppard. Motley Crue definitely is showing their age, vocal age. But but well, Def Leppard, Nikki Six doesn't play bass anymore. Yeah, like they like he stopped playing and the track kept going. Or but something. but who the when you're there, okay? And this this visual that they put forward, I mean. They are like taking like when Def Leppard was on the stage and you got the big screens, it allowed you from the distance to see them. Okay, they right. put them up there and you could see who was singing, you could see who was playing guitar. But freaking Motley Crue, it was it was basically they turned their whole concert into a music video. I mean, it was yeah. like they would like he'd be, you know Vince Neil would be singing and all of a sudden. You'd, be, you'd see them for like two seconds, you know, on the big screen, and then they'd like freeze it and throw all these special effects. He was melting with lava, and then the lights and the I laser. I mean, it was a, it was like oh, there's no. Lover, like, I mean, those albums, especially like Hysteria, yeah, was, was so well produced and oh, it was yeah. so textured and. I mean, Motley Crue was just like... Oh, yeah, there was a difference. You know, both, I enjoyed Motley Crue. I wouldn't say I didn't like them, and I've heard that I expected worse. Yeah, but, but it, I mean, it is what it is. But Def Leppard just freaking just went... It was nuts how good it yeah, was. Definitely. I didn't feel they lost Def a step. Like accomplished musicians on a very high level. Yeah, yeah, and still to this day, the guy could sing "Mary Had a Little Lamb," and you'd be like, "God, that's the best fucking rendition." <laughs> well, but but when he first was when he started out the night, he wasn't pushing the high notes, okay. Right. So and then, but as as it kept going and they just kept building towards their hits, he was just knocking the high notes out of. I mean, it sounded like I, I swear to God, "Rock of Ages" was better than the album. That listening to that song live, I was like, "That's better than the album." <laughs> and so when when you say that about someone live, you know, and then their their advanced age for a band, you know, right. it's just like I, I wasn't expecting that, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Right on. So all right, well, I mean, it's getting really late for you. 
Yeah, it's eleven. What <laughs> that we we had uh, Lisa Roper Wicker on one night, and it was I when I finished the podcast was like two hours and forty three minutes. I actually apologized to her because we were just talking and whatever, and I'm just like, how the hell was it two hours and forty three minutes? I cut it in half and whatever, but you know we we enjoy hanging out with you so. I appreciate the time. Oh, I sure do. I, it's, I, yeah, I, if you probably, if it started at four, I definitely could have gone two hours. <laughs> but man, it has been a long day. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want anybody to go two hours and 43 minutes, but at the same time, it helps. Uh, the longer you're just live on Facebook, the more people that, you know, you're getting right. out there too. So, and we really appreciate your time. Yeah. And uh, it was a pleasure. I had a great time. I hope I answered all your questions. Yeah, for sure. Okay, everybody, uh, we're going to wrap up. Uh, we are the Scotchy Bourbon Boys, www.scotchybourbonboys.com for all Scotchy Bourbon Boy things, Glen Karen's t-shirts, and uh, we've actually got a new product that's going to be, we've got what is it? bottle openers that right. go on your refrigerator with... Is that made out of a bung? It looks like it, but no, it was just like, I couldn't believe the product, but then it's like, it really pulls off the barrel head look, right? So, and then it's a bot, you know, it opens the bottle and, but it will stick right to your refrigerator. So that's one of our new products that we're selling. And then also, uh, remember we're on all social media, Facebook, uh, Instagram, X, and YouTube, and then also on all major podcast formats, uh, check us out on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, and Spotify, and ask Alexa or Siri to play us, and you can. But remember, and uh, thank you, Aaron, for joining us tonight. Oh, again, my, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and thank you to everyone who uh, tuned into Facebook Live, and then also people listening on the podcast. I, uh, I, if you're fans, I appreciate you all. You're, you're what makes it happen. Thanks, CT, for doing that. Hey, awesome. Glad, glad to be a part of it. All right. So, thank you. Good bourbon equals good times and good friends. And little Stevo is going to take us out. Is there outro? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. <laughs> Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. For if we don't find the next whiskey bar, I tell you we must die. I tell you we must die I tell you, I tell you I tell you we must die Hey, Scotchy Bourbon Boys fans This is Alan Bishop, Indiana's alchemist of the Black Forest So I'm tuning in here today to tell you all about the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute channel on YouTube If you're at all interested in the art of distilling, whether it be home distilling or professional distilling, and the intense geekery that goes into that process, 
then check out the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute on YouTube. I promise you're going to learn something you didn't know before about the arts. <laughs>